Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to season four of the Fast Track Impact podcast. So this week, I have a guest with me, Dr. Katarina Sedlinska, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Psychology at the Czech Academy of Sciences. And I'm really looking forward to this because uh, I really enjoyed um, Katarina's most recent paper and think that it has some really deep insights that are going to be useful for many of us. Uh, Most of us at at some point uh, have had some doubts about our career uh, and depending on um, where we are in the research cycle or marking cycle or whatever else it might be, uh, we uh, we may uh, fantasize uh, about uh, other jobs we might prefer to be doing other than what we are doing right now. Uh, and of course, uh, many of our colleagues uh, are uh, are leaving uh, the academy for many good reasons. Um, uh, I've uh, heard people talking uh, recently uh, about the, the, the great resignation um, uh, as people come back. Uh, from uh, flexible working through COVID uh, to careers where they now have to be in uh, face-to-face. And uh, for many of us, uh, lecturing is one of those activities that we are now mandated to do face-to-face. And thinking, yeah, am I actually up for this commute, um, for the lack of flexibility that uh, I've grown used to with my children, pets, uh, work-life balance, uh, all of these things, uh, and thinking, hmm, uh, maybe the time is coming to go. Uh, And if that is you, then uh, Katerina's new paper uh, provides a framework to start thinking about the various different reasons that people start on this exit trajectory. Uh, And it goes to a really deep level in terms of the identities that we have and how we might be able to more or less effectively pursue those identities uh, either within or outside the academy. And uh, so uh, as I dig into this, um, uh, Katerina, first of all, I wonder, could you tell us a bit more about your academic disciplinary background and what led you to do this study? So welcome, Katerina. (laughs) Hello, thank you for having me here. Well, I'm a sociologist with a background in higher education studies and gender studies. And in in the last 10 years, I focused in my research on academic uh, careers, academic environment in general, especially working conditions in academia, and also on the support of early career researchers, uh, their careers. And because of that, I started to focus also on the academic transitions or career transitions from academic careers to non-academic careers. And in 2010, when I was wondering what what topic to choose for my PhD project, I just discussed it with my uh, then boss. And... uh, we realized that uh, in the Czech Republic, we have no data about uh, people who left academia or uh, in, uh, in, uh, we had 
to some data about PhD holders, meaning like uh, uh, figures from some international surveys where they are, in what positions are people with PhD degree. But we don't know much about them, as about uh, people, about their professional identities, about their approach to academic work. And we were interested in that in the context of current debates in academia about excellence and uh, the, the, the stress on the need to support only those who are excellent and to support only the, those who are the best. And because we were in the Center for Gender and Science, we say just, okay, hey, so there is such a lot of women at the beginning of the career. And then when you look through the academic letter, when you go higher, they are lacking. And looks a little bit suspicious that we support only the best ones because it would mean that uh, women are not among the best which we were suspicious about of course we are women <laughs> and uh, we wanted to know more about those people who are leaving and what could uh, what could it mean for academia if people with specific uh, approach to research are leaving so it was the beginning in simple way i wanted to know what kind of people are leaving academia what kind of academics the academia loses and what could it mean for the future academic production so important that we challenge these ideas of excellence and and how we support our, our research stars or whatever else it might be and uh, and that we think more broadly about equality, diversity, inclusion, and about the, the lived life trajectories um, uh, that our work uh, might be part of and how this interacts with these systems uh, that, uh, that we've created uh, that uh, are often highly maladaptive uh, when it comes to facilitating the, the kind of work-life balance um, and uh, ability to achieve our own goals, uh, both professionally and outside work, uh, that, that I think most of us strive for. Uh, so I'm wondering if it's not too personal a question. Um, you've written about uh, the academic identities and trajectories of the people that you interviewed. I wonder how would you describe your own academic identity and, uh, and trajectory and what's shaped that for you, Katrina? Well, um, I have never been that kind of academic, which is uh, especially into the fundamental research. I was applied. I was in applied research from the very beginning. Uh, like I said, I started to work in academia in the Center for Gender and Science, and from the very beginning, we focused on the working conditions in academia, on gender inequalities, and we wanted to make the practice better and to use our research to make this practice better. So uh, I always saw my research work as some kind of uh, service work uh, for the practice. So this is my approach to academic work. And uh, my, my uh, trajectory, well, I think that it's uh, quite stable because uh, I was always a little bit activist and uh, I still am. <laughs> So uh, I, for example, founded a Czech Association of PhD Candidates because I wanted to uh, um, make the PhD training in the Czech Republic a little bit better or not make it, but to contribute 
to make it better. So uh, I always saw the connection between the academic work and the practice. But uh, yeah, it's probably also about the discipline and social scientists. And uh, yeah, and it's also about the topics. Fantastic. So uh, we're getting a sense already of, of the kind of, of findings that, that you've come with, kind of alluded to this, but it'd be good to hear a bit more about the, the key findings from your work. Um, and maybe it's worth starting by just summarizing some of the methods so we get a sense of, of where these findings have come from. So can you summarize the, the paper briefly for us? What, what are the key findings? Well, uh, well, about the method, uh, it was uh, really <laughs> a little bit tough and funny at the beginning. And I had a good luck that I got a student grant. So I had a few money for, for uh, paying the students to help me with it because I needed to reach the people who actually left academia, which is something quite original about the, about the paper. Because uh, usually when you look at the li literature about... Uh, leavings from academia it is mostly hypothetical leaving because actual academics current academics are asked if they consider leaving so it is quite easy to reach them you just send email to academic uh, uh, workers but when you would like to reach people who left it's quite difficult because there are no any lists of these people so uh I asked a few students to collect for me all the email addresses of the Czech academicians. So we collected 32,000 of addresses and I spent them with the request that, hey, if you have around you some people who left uh, academic work, academic career uh, after PhD, five years after PhD maximum, so please send them the link to the questionnaire. So the first part of the, of the research was quantitative. And then at the end of the questionnaire, there was that column with, with the request, okay, if you, are, if you are willing to give me more time and to have interview with me, so please leave the email address. So uh, in, in, in this way, I collected a few contacts and then there was a lot of snowballing. And uh, after that, I collected 45 uh, interviews. So it was the beginning and uh, it was really... Uh, Sometimes funny, sometimes a little bit sad because I got a lot of hate mails that uh, it's just uh, some crap. And if uh, it is normal to get a PhD degree in sociology with such a, a stupid research, so it means something about the about the discipline and blah blah blah. So it was it was sometimes really 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 tough and sad. But uh, after that, I got that uh, that simple and I'm really really glad that uh, it was possible to gather people from very diverse disciplines and uh, I have the chance to follow the disciplinary specifics in the research and uh, finally it was uh, one of my most important findings that uh, there are some gender and disciplinary specifics when we uh, look at the professional identities of people who have left and that it is connected somehow with the, with the fact that the system of academic assessment and funding and the normative identities in academic professions uh, work a little bit differently in social sciences and humanities on one side and uh, STEM discipline, uh, STEM field on the other side. 
Well, yeah, and about the findings. So as I said that I was uh, interested in what kind of people leave academia and what could it mean for academic production. So in that context of uh, the stress on academic excellence, I have to say that uh, we found in the research something which what we called academic identity paradox, because even those who identify very strongly as uh, members of academic community who feel like academics, who are self-confident about their research and who cares about quality and they stress the need to care for research excellence. And that is, it is uh, from their point of view, the most important thing, even those are leaving. But as I said that, uh, uh, there are gender and disciplinary dis uh, differences. So we can see that there were two groups in this, uh, in this category of people. And the first one were uh, men and women from various disciplines, and they were very critical uh, about the system of academic assessment, of uh, assessment of academic work and about the funding. And they had the feeling that there is no place in the environment for doing that excellent research because you are preoccupied with a lot of uh, activities which you do just for their, their own sake and uh, that you cannot focus on the real academic work and that it supports bad practices like predatory journals and uh, citations brotherhoods and all these, uh, all these practices we know about. And the other group was uh, completely different but the outcome is the same, they left. And it was uh, the group of women from STEM field, and they were absolutely not critical about the environment. Uh, they said that they uh, cannot, uh, they don't want to stay in academia because they are not uh, able to do the science on the excellent level if they don't want to sacrifice their personal life. So they want to leave because they think that the only good way how to do the science, the only proper way and honest way is to do it on the excellent level. And if you cannot do it anymore, it's not the good thing to stay because otherwise you are not a good scientist and you don't support good science. So uh, there are two groups who are stressing excellence, but the first one is saying that environment is not enabling to do an excellent science. And the other thing is saying, okay, it's possible to do it, but only when you sacrifice your life. So it's about personal priorities. And the first group think uh, that it is more about environment. So when we think about uh, what does it mean for academia, I would say that uh, first, uh, when we think about uh, the need of uh, diversity of academic population to enable the academic production to be much more socially responsible because it reflects more diverse perspectives which are uh, uh, which are in society, uh, then we see that uh, current uh, systems, current uh, criteria for staying in academia uh, doesn't mean that it, this is supported. And uh, we, we um, agree uh, with, for example, McFarlane's, who's very uh, cautious about uh, the problems with the uh, socialization of next generations of uh, researchers, because if they are so socialized to this system, it means that a lot of people who don't identify with the with the 
image of academic of profession as something which means that you sacrifice your personal life and uh, the only stress is on um, outcomes like articles and uh, having more grants it uh, doesn't mean that we will support socially responsible and especially critical critical is the main thing critical researchers and critical research so uh, we think that uh, we need to not not to focus only on uh, trying to uh, attract more talents for academia we think that we need to stress that we need to focus also on trying to keep in academia people who really who really care for excellence and for quality and now they are they are leaving and especially women in STEM. Brilliant. So it's fascinating to hear uh, some of the, the methods behind this and these uh, these findings. I was wondering uh, how hard it was for you to get that sample. Um, I, I myself, as a social scientist, have had major issues uh, getting the samples that I want uh, since GDPR came in, um, and this was an even harder one, and I'm so sorry to hear that it was even harder than that, that you were getting hate mail uh, alongside that. Um, so. Well done for pushing through and uh, and managing to 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 get this research done. Um, and some really interesting and important findings in terms of these uh, gender biases, uh, disciplinary biases, and the like. And I want to come back to that in a moment, if I may. But uh, I'm also interested in this this broader point that you're making, um, the the idea that that people are, are socialized into this. Uh, stereotype of um or maybe it's not a stereotype into this reality that that you see in certain parts of the academy that uh, to be an academic means to do nothing else um uh, and so in my experience which matches up with your your data these kinds of uh, things that they're, they're subcultures uh, they tend to, to to operate at the scale of individual labs and, and research groups that have the misfortune of being led by people who are workaholics um, and so in my experience I, I, I see groups like that um, and even within the same school other groups who seem to prioritize work-life balance more effectively um, and so I wonder to what extent this is a minority of leaders uh, that are having a, a disproportionate impact on the disillusionment that we're currently seeing around us. Um, uh, and uh, perhaps one of the first steps to creating the kind of cultures that will retain uh, our, our, uh, the, the, the academics who are leaving uh, is actually to try and target some of, uh, some of these workaholic uh, leaders as much as it is uh, to build the capacity and, and support for our ECRs to stay in these in these roles in these jobs. Yes, here I would like to add that uh, uh, those women who were in that group who had the feeling that you really need to sacrifice yourself to academic work, otherwise it's not possible to do it on the right level, on the good level. Uh, it was mainly people from biosciences, especially biochemistry. So it means the disciplines which are the fastest. So... Uh, uh, definitely, it has the connection with the thing that if you are a workaholic uh, and if you are in a very, very fast field, then, of course, you could be in advantage because uh, in such a huge competition, which we have in the in the field, then 
if you work more, you have more uh, publications, you have more grants, of course, you have better chances to have another grants and do, to do your work because you can have another funding like we, we can uh, like we can read in, uh, in Merton cumulative advantage works. So yeah, it, it, it's definitely the problem. But uh, what we can do with it? Well, uh, I think, or what I think in especially Czech environment, where we have a big uh, disproportion between institutional stable funding and grant funding, is that we need to make, to make the system more stable. Because uh, if we will not a little bit decrease the competition, of course, uh, every time the people who are workaholics will be in advantage because uh, they produce more. And if the competition is about uh, competing outcomes, you have more publications, you have more grants, you will have another grant, then uh, it's not possible to, to solve that problem. And it also means that there is big uh, disproportion between the stability of people. People who are more senior have uh, more uh, stable contracts and those who are junior are in a very unstable, uncertain situation and they are dependent uh, very much on their supervisors, on their bosses. So... Uh, in, their, in, in this constellation, I think that it's not possible to uh, make the environment more uh, enabling people to have work-life balance. So I think that one of the healings is, uh, or one, one of the medicines is uh, to change the proportion of institutional and grant funding, because otherwise the competition is just devastating. Yeah, so I want to dig into this differentiation between whose responsibility is this? Is this our own individual responsibility to um, curb our workaholic tendencies and deal with whatever happens to be driving that? Uh, and to what extent is it, as you're saying, the institution's responsibility to create the right kind of environment um, and to avoid incentives that drive the, the, the kinds of competitive advantage that then workaholics uh, benefit from? Uh, and in particular, I'd like to zoom in to this finding um, about the, the gender bias that you saw in your work. And this is something that I see quite often in professional services. Um, and I don't have a sample at all. Uh, so this could just be my own uh, biased perception, uh, potentially. Um, uh, but uh, but many of the, the colleagues that I work with in professional services, especially people in impact related roles, um, were uh, early career researchers uh, and left to join professional services um, because of this conflict, this, uh, this idea that, uh, that it was the only way not only to get job uh, security, uh, but also to, to retain a work-life uh, work balance um, and not to have to make uh, sacrifices. Um, and, and I think the, the, the principles of these people are making it clear, yeah, nobody should ask me to make those kinds of, of principles. And so, so they're principled, inspiring decisions that people have made to, to leave what they perceive as a broken system and, uh, and join professional services, which is, of course, part of the system still. But, um, but uh, things work very differently. It's a very different working environment. Um, and so I wonder, to what extent do you think that um, uh, that it needs that it should be 
um, a person's individual re responsibility. Um, it should be the responsibility of the institution or it should be the responsibility of society to change the way in which we work so people don't feel that they have to make the choice between personal and work life uh, and to try and then hopefully make academia a more attractive place for women. Well, I definitely agree that uh, it's also the responsibility of institutions. Of course, it's responsibility of uh, individuals too. It's about my own boundaries and about my uh, time management and all this stuff. But uh, I am still working in some structure and there are structural barriers for uh, my uh, my horizons, how to do the things. So uh, I think that uh, we need to we need to um, admit that these structures have the real impact on careers of people and that uh, it causes uh, gender inequalities. And uh, if we want to have more women, to keep more women in academia, we need to uh, change these structures because otherwise uh, it's not possible to to keep them. Uh, so we saw it, for example, in the Czech Republic, where uh, all these changes of the system, of the of the assessment of uh, academic work and funding, it started quite a short time ago, if you compare it with uh, Great Britain, for example. So uh, it's like a, a little bit more than a decade. And uh, we see that from the start uh, of this uh, of these uh, changes, uh, the 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 disproportion between the numbers of women who are qualified for academic work so it means they have phd degree and those who actually stays in the system it started to be a uh, uh, increasing gap between these numbers so uh, these structural changes really make it more difficult for women to to stay in academia and these structures are made by people so people can change them too of course and it was uh, it was interesting and sometimes funny when we did a research uh, in a Czech academia among um, people who are in decision making positions and we asked them if uh, they think that uh, the criteria for academic careers and the career ladders and all these things should reflect the the personal life of people and they said, okay, no, of course, it has nothing to do with your personal life. And then we asked them if uh, uh, their, their working life was somehow influenced by their personal life, by having children. And they said, because it was mostly men, they said, no, 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 because this burden was on my wife. And we said, yeah, hey, and that is what we when we say, okay, could we reflect it a little bit in the career letters and with the, in the criteria for having associate professorship or professorship. But I have to say something positive that it started to change. And for example, at many Czech universities, Nauha, they started to have a little bit uh, softer criteria for associate professorships if you were or on parent leave, if you have small children, and uh, they reflect that if you are a woman, you have uh, you have bigger problem to uh, vent to to go for long term academic mobility for years, because for example your husband is not willing to 
left his job, his career. So uh, it started to change a little bit, and I hope that we will see. In- there is hope, <laughs> yes. and uh, increasingly we're seeing similar things in the UK and uh, and elsewhere internationally. Um, leveling that playing field to an extent, but clearly more work to be done. Um, uh, I wonder if I can focus um, uh, for a moment on on impact, because, um, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm reading what you've written about as humanism in your paper, as kind of impact based on how you've defined that. Uh, and, and in two of the four trajectories that you I identified, uh, impact, if we agree we are talking about the same thing, uh, plays a really important role in people's decision to leave the academy. Uh, and uh, it also forms a, a big part of their uh, their post-academic identities very often. Uh, and so it is this desire to really actually make a difference that seems to be contributing to the disillusionment of many of those who end up leaving because the academy encourages meaningless metrics over actual impact. And there's this sense that uh, I'm doing all of this stuff to just... Uh, yeah, it meets certain uh, notional criteria to keep the bean counters happy and such like. Um, at the same time, others left academia to pursue careers in their fields that were more likely to actually make a difference and bring them meaning. So, for example, yeah, I'm still uh, an environmental scientist, but now I'm working in policy or in industry. And so I wonder, uh, to what extent do you think that building healthy impact cultures and resourcing these properly might enable early career researchers to find enough meaning uh, when it comes to impact, which is, uh, for many of us, uh, the the focus, the, the, the purpose for which we do what we do, but find enough of that to remain in academia? Uh well, I think that it could really help because many people are really interested when they started to, when they start their PhD study, they are usually very uh, uh, idealistic about how the, the academia works and about their research and uh, they want to do it properly. And uh, if they have a chance to do it properly and if they have uh, good luck, being in a workplace where it is possible to focus on research properly, they usually uh, keep their enthusiasm and they they stay. And there there are the workplaces like that, of course. But uh, we see that the systematic systematic problems are uh, impacting the whole environment. And uh, yeah, you have few islands, but in general. Uh, it's really problematic. So, uh, yeah, if you could do the research on the level which you think is the right thing and you can focus on research and you aren't preoccupied with the other activities like hunting for money and paperwork, so then it really helps to uh, keep the, the enthusiasm of people and their willingness to, to stay in academia. Yeah, um, a meta impact of impact, potentially. Uh, So one final question. Um, I think that the narrative around academic inadequacy in the last trajectory that you identified in the paper is something that 
I know resonates with me. I think it will resonate with a lot of people listening. Um, one of your interviewees who became an IT program said, I'm going to quote um, from, from your paper here. He said, uh, our workplace hosted the top scientists in the field, people who had proved the most fundamental statements in math. You meet these great minds and you say to yourself, if I were like them, I would stay. Uh, and I think that the majority of academics that I work with experience imposter syndrome at some point, uh, quite often, quite regularly. I certainly do. Uh, it often gets worse when people get made professors, um, uh, but it's just well, not something that we typically talk about. Um, and and uh, so I wonder, uh, um, do you think that maybe training or like coaching to tackle issues like, like uh, imposter syndrome, who can such really as contribute this uh, new to IT program was bigger? Uh, can really help, but uh, on someone the other like side, them, uh, uh, especially other, this guy, uh, uh, with this uh, quotation, uh, it was someone who, uh, in which case it would not work, I think, because it was someone who, during the PhD study, realized that their uh, strengths and weaknesses are somewhere else, and they can use, he can use his, uh, his uh, skills somewhere else where it will be much easier for him to have successful career and uh, to have uh, good work-life balance and uh, better money, of course, IT programmer. Uh, so uh, in this case, it was more like a happy story because uh, he said, okay, so I tried, I really enjoyed it, but at the end, if I really want to be somewhere where I feel confident and where I feel that uh, uh, I can really contribute to uh, to my profession and to do it properly, so then my place is somewhere else. So, yeah, in some cases, definitely it will help. Imposter syndrome is a big problem in academic environment. But in some cases, it was really happy story. Yeah, that's nice. And I think it challenges my own assumptions here. Just because I suffer from imposter syndrome doesn't mean that that was what was necessarily going on. And I think there's a humility in understanding uh, and having an honest appreciation of your own strengths and weaknesses. And where there is a mismatch uh, to your career, finding a career that better matches uh, your strengths and weaknesses so you can play to your strengths and aren't constantly reminded by your weaknesses. Um, and certainly the ways in which I have morphed my own academic career has been all about that. Um, and in some careers, uh, academic directories, it is easier to morph your own career around your strengths and weaknesses than it is in others. Um, and so that, that does make sense. And it's really nice to end with that happy story. Uh, and and my hope is that the majority of uh, of the people um, in your sample were indeed happy to have made that move out. Um, and I think part of this is then about having the courage and the conviction to say, no, this is not right for me. Um, I know my wife, when she left uh, medicine, lots of people told her, what a waste. You know, you've spent five years training, you've uh, got almost up to being a consultant, and then you leave. Um, and she was like, it's not a waste if I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, it would be a waste to carry on doing something that I don't want to be doing anymore uh, and missing out on all of the opportunities that I can see in my local community and my children and, uh, and all of that kind of stuff as well. 
Um, and so, so whilst uh, I've been questioning you in relation to, well, what can we do to, to keep people in academia? And for many of us, there are really important things that, uh, that we can do to help our colleagues uh, find their niche and play to their strengths and have a really fulfilling and balanced academic career. Uh, for others, it's, it's, it's about actually uh, validating and supporting people to build the skills that they need to then move into a more fulfilling career than staying in academia. So with this in mind, I wonder what would be your messages to early career researchers who are listening to this and, uh, and currently doubting their future in academia, what, what would you say? Well, I would say that uh, it's uh, very, uh, you need to consider it very carefully. And uh, what uh, I do, for example, for early career researchers are uh, career development workshops. And during these workshops, we uh, uh, do something like a self-analysis of every attendant attendant of the of the workshop and we spoke about their priorities about their what they really like what kind of uh, working agenda they like uh, what kind of uh, positions should be could be uh, good for them where they could be happy uh, what are the characteristics of specific working environments so all this stuff and we push them to have mentors or not only mentors but also something like consultants, contacts from every workplaces or better to say sector or environment where uh, you need to have more information to decide carefully if it is something really for you. Because uh, I absolutely don't want to uh, push people uh, from academia to say, okay, it's horrible here, so be happy somewhere else. Because for someone, it's definitely the right place and uh, they could really contribute to uh, broadening academic knowledge and to uh, look after the students and all this stuff. So uh, I would really I would really say that you need to decide it very carefully. Don't do it in a rush. Don't, and especially when you are ending your PhD study, uh, start with this search because uh, postdoc stage is really quite tough. You will be very, very busy. I would say much more busy than PhD students. So uh, start to do it uh, last year of your PhD study or a few months before ending. And uh, yeah, try try to get as much as information as possible because uh, what we see is that uh, PhD students are usually very focused on their topic, uh, especially in STEM field. They are very, uh, uh, their horizons are not too broad because they are in a, in a team, they are in one lab, uh, and they have a lot of work in the same workplace. So they have, uh, they don't have a lot of, they don't have imagination what could be elsewhere. So uh, we want them to start uh, to have this imagination. Yeah, so really important that you're doing these uh, these workshops. Fantastic to hear this. I think it's great that you're creating the spaces, uh, hopefully safe spaces, in which people can do this thinking. They can meet others who are thinking about this 
uh, get advice, uh, learn from each other uh, and do that thinking. Uh, and as you say, uh, some very careful thoughts required uh, on these kinds of decisions. But my hope is that uh, our conversation today uh, will inform some of those thoughts uh, of those who are listening. So it just remains for me to say thank you, Dr. Katarina Sedlinska, for your time and your input to today's episode and for sharing your research uh, with the podcast audience here today. It's been a real pleasure. I hope that you have all found this as illuminating and inspiring as I have and that this goes some way towards informing your thinking on these really tricky issues. Mm-hmm.